if you have your Bibles, open them up to Genesis chapter 3. This morning we're going to read Genesis chapter 3, and then we're going to look at a section in Romans chapter 5, and we're going to see Paul talk about Genesis chapter 3 and the significance of it. Now, we are in a series on God's plan for leadership, and we, we talked about, we opened it up by just talking about the priority of humility in leaders, and that's because humility is actually a priority in the life of every person, and if we're not humble, then God's against us, and so that's one of the things that we look for um, in spiritual maturity is, is there a humility in life before God and toward others? And when we're thinking about people for leadership, that is significant because we don't want leaders that God is opposed to. The second thing that we looked at is God's qualifications. God describes spiritual maturity. And he lists out this is what spiritual maturity looks like. And so we're looking for those things in our leaders. People who read God's word, who see it as authoritative, and who spend time disciplining themselves and practicing living out what God says we're supposed to be. A person who humbly submits to God, a person who says, okay, God, if this is what you say I'm going to need to be like, I'm going to practice that. And one of the things that we recognize is everybody's a sinner. Everybody falls short. And in the same way you struggle to be who you should be, our leaders struggle to be who they should be. And so uh, we looked at those qualifications, and that goes back to humility. And what we're doing right now is we're going through Genesis 2 and 3 because we really do want to talk about God's design in leadership and how men and women function. We talked about how um, this church has had a history of having men pastors, not women pastors. This church has had a history of men preaching on Sunday morning, not women preaching. This church has had a history of male elders. And often we just do things because we're comfortable with it. And it's traditional. And nowadays there are many churches and many places where that is not the case. And we're tossing off those traditions for the past. And one of the things that's very important for us to consider is what does God say about this? How should we think about God's design and leadership? Because one of the things that we know is that what God designs is always best and right. The challenge is that many times um, people misinterpret what God says. And sometimes they apply it incorrectly. And so it's important for us to study scripture and say, God, what do you say? And one of the things that we find as you go through the New Testament, as God is giving specific instructions and guidance on how leadership should work in the home and in the church, he constantly refers back to Genesis chapter 2 and 3. And so we're, we're studying Genesis 2 and 3. We did that last week, and we're just making some observations. We're going to do that again today. We're going to look at Genesis chapter 3. We're going to make some observations from that chapter, and then we'll jump into the New Testament. What does God say about how this is supposed to work? And so um, in our study of Genesis 2 and 3, we understand that God created and he gave mankind a purpose. We also are going to find out in these two chapters, specifically this morning, uh, what went wrong? Why is life broken? How has life broken? And every Bible writer, this is just an interesting thing, every Bible writer refers to Genesis 2 and 3, 1, 2, and 3 as historical. We have a tendency to go back and reread the opening passages of Genesis and just disregard them as poetic, and we don't view them as an account of historical reality. And there are many people who say, oh man, that just doesn't matter. I know when you read it, it says this, but that's not actually what it means and then what you find is people go through the New Testament, they do the same thing. They read something and say, well, that's what it says, but that's not what it means. And one of the things that we consider as we're looking at Scripture is that God intends for us to understand what he's telling us. As we approach Scripture, there are some people that they, they feel like, Scripture is this magical code. In fact, you've heard about Bible codes where people write a book and say, oh, man, if you look at the Hebrew letters and you take every 20th consonant and put it together, you learn the secret message that God has for us. What I want you to know 
is that there are no secret messages in the Bible. God wrote it. He knows we need it. It is his good gift for us, and it is his intention that we understand what he is saying. There are many people, when they read a legal contract, if they read it one way, and they realize that words and grammar have meaning, and then those same people take the Bible and they feel like, oh, no, this can mean whatever I want it to mean. No, God communicated, and he intended to be understood. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't challenges. Um, Peter says of Paul, some of the things he writes are hard to understand. So there are places that are a challenge for us. But God intends for us to understand what he wrote. It says this, uh, Proverbs 29, 18, where there is no vision, the people perish. But he who keeps the law is happy as he. Uh, the ESV that we use says this, where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint, but blessed is he who keeps the law. This verse is used by many to say we need a visionary leader, somebody with great ideas about where we should go. Where there is no vision, people perish. And they actually misread that passage. What this passage is saying is that if God is not speaking, we perish. You could say without God's word, without scripture, without God's guidance, people perish. It's not the wonderful ideas of some man that we need. It's what God says that we need. Think about Deuteronomy. Um, uh, Moses says this, For this commandment that I am commanding you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven where we need somebody to bring it down to us. It is not beyond the sea. But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. From the very beginning, God gave his word and his guidance. And it's been close. And it's, it's been something that's easy to understand. It's been something that's easy to obey. It's right there. We know what God says. We just have to do it. Well, we're going to learn today why obedience is so challenging. Why it's so difficult. Why we have a tendency to rebel against God. The Bible also tells us this, and this is true for those of us who are believers. It says, but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone from, should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and there is no law, just it is, as it has been taught you, abide in him. One of the ministries of the Holy Spirit is to give us understanding of God's word. And so God intends for us to know and to understand what he says. Now, one of the things that we're going to see is that the fall of mankind, when Adam and Eve sinned, that caused very specific problems in how men and women relate to each other. Uh, we're going to see that today. We're going to see that we live in a broken world with unimaginable personal tragedy. You know, the relationships that God has intended to be filled with joy and encouragement and support can be so full of strife and difficulty. You know, marriages, God intended men and women to love each other, to complement each other. God made us unique and with significant contributions to be made. God intends that we build each other up, encourage each other, and are focused on accomplishing his purpose. And yet these relationships that are supposed to be so encouraging and beneficial often are the most significant sources of pain and sorrow. Well, Genesis 3, we're going to understand why that is. You know, parents and kids, think, think about the pain and sorrow that comes in relationships between parents and kids. That is not what God intended. Uh, think about this. You have two people that love a kid and bring this kid into the world and do everything to try to help them and encourage them and prepare them to be successful in their life. And yet, what happens often in relationships between parents and kids, this loving relationship that's supposed to be encouraged, so encouraging and so supportive, sometimes the people that God gave to care for kids are abusive and angry and harmful and they neglect to train and raise and love their kids. What God called parents to do with their kids, they don't do. 
and kids who are supposed to love and follow and submit to their parents are so often rebellious and it's just heartbreaking and devastating to see the conflict and the strife that happens. Church, God has intended church families to love each other, support each other, encourage each other. Hebrews 10, right? Don't forsake the assembling together, but encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. And yet how often is there stress and difficulty and conflict within the church? Even in neighborhoods, there can be devastating strife between neighbors. Think about that. Neighbors should live together, look out for each other, care for each other. And yet you have neighbors where there's massive strife and people hate each other. What God has intended is certainly broken. And we see how that happened and why that happened as we look at Genesis chapter 3. So we're going to dive in there. And I want to start by just saying this, that God is, God's design is always right and best. And yet because of sin, mankind has a tendency to mess everything up. Even when we try to do what God tells us to do, often we do it incorrectly. And so as we approach the role of men and women and as we approach everything in life, it is really important that we don't discount or add anything to what God has said. It's our intention to figure out, God, what did you say? That's what I'm going to do. And Genesis chapter 3 is the story of what happens when a person says, God, I know you say this, but I've actually decided that the way I see life is better and more important. And God, instead of doing what you said, what you said seems so wrong. I'm going to do what I think should be done. And Genesis chapter 3 is the story of what happened in the life of Adam and Eve when they did that. It's the story of everything wrong in this world. And it goes back to this one thing. Somebody trusted their perspective instead of God's. And so as we read this story, we're going to learn this. We're going to see what happened. And then we're going to make a commitment, I hope, that as we approach life, that we will humbly study and read God's word. And we will come to the place where we say, God, I am going to obey you. And sometimes it makes perfect sense. But even if it doesn't make sense, even if it does not fit my preference, I know that you're God, you're in charge, you made the world. You have the right to tell people what to do and how to live. I also know, God, that you are good and that you are wise and that you love me and everything that you tell me is for my good. So I don't understand it. I don't know why it's this way, but if that's what you say, that's what I'm going to do. And hopefully that is our response to what we read in Genesis chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles, open them up. Genesis chapter 3. And the first thing that we're going to see is that God's word is true. And Jesus said this. He said, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. God doesn't lie to us in Scripture. And there's all kinds of debates when it comes to the opening chapters of Genesis. And what is amazing to me is that we will take scientists who have studied the world and they are personally committed to explaining the world without God. Uh, God does not exist and I will not make any provision for the existence of God. Now, how do we explain how we're here? And we will take people like that who hate God, who explain the world without God, and we will elevate their teaching, and then we'll read the opening chapters of Genesis written by God himself. And we'll say, no, it didn't really happen that way. And, and the mental gymnastics people come up with to do that, it's, it's amazing what people do as they approach Genesis. But one of the things that we understand is that God's word reflects his character. Everything that God says is true. God is never wrong. God never discovers new information. God is not irrational. Like, think about science. 
Science today tells us that you could feel like a man today and be a woman tomorrow and that your biology is not connected to your gender. Think about the insane things that our culture and that scientists promote. Um, it shouldn't be very hard uh, even as we look at the coronavirus information, you got this scientist saying that, you got this scientist saying this. Can I just tell you what we know for sure? Nobody knows what they're talking about. Everybody says this is how it is. Just give it some time. You realize they're wrong. Well, let me just explain something to all of us, right? God is never wrong. And God is always truthful. And God's word is authoritative. It bears his authority. And God's word is good because it is a reflection of God's goodness. Let's look at this first command, Genesis chapter 1, verse 15. Okay, we're doing Genesis 3, but we've got to start in Genesis 1.15. Flip that page. Sorry. Genesis 1.15. The Lord God took the man, he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. I just want to point out, work is a good thing. God gave Adam work. This is before the fall. Some people think, oh, man, this is terrible. I have to go to work. Work is not bad. That is something that God, it was a good gift that God gave. Verse 16, and the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of the tree of the garden, of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. So isn't that amazing? God gives Adam one command. Remember when it said in Deuteronomy, God's not making this hard. He's making this easy for you. God gave Adam one command. Here's a tree. Don't eat from this. You can do anything else. Just don't eat from the tree of this fruit, the fruit of this tree. One thing. We find out later he stuck that tree in the middle of the garden. Everywhere Adam, and he, everywhere Adam went, he could see the tree. What an incredible gift. It was simple. You know, people have always said, what's the oldest profession? Uh, it's, it's landscaping. It's farming. That is the oldest profession. And uh, one of the things that we see is that God made this simple. He made it easy. And he gave them every opportunity to trust him, to regularly obey him. As they're walking around the garden and enjoying God's goodness, they saw that tree. And it was an opportunity to just worship God and say God loves us and God's good. And he said, we can do anything we want, just don't eat from that tree. I wish life was that simple. Um, but one of the things I'm guessing is that I'd probably mess it up even if it was. And so God just tells him, don't eat. All they had to do every day was to believe God, to trust him, to think about his goodness and wisdom, to submit to him, to worship him. It's an expression of a relationship with God. God, I love you, and you said don't do this, and I'm not going to. You know, one of the things that we think about in this case, and this is what is so amazing about the fall of mankind, is that Adam was a perfect man. Adam and Eve were perfect humans. Have you ever heard people say to sin is human? You know, to sin is not human. Because Adam and Eve were perfect, and they had no sin nature. We're going to find out what happened in Genesis, in, in Genesis chapter 3 and Romans 5, that we have a sin nature. We have a disposition towards sin. We just, we mess everything up. But Adam and Eve were not born that way. And Jesus was the second Adam. He was born human, the way Adam was human, without a fallen nature, but just like Adam. And uh, that's, Jesus is the second Adam, we'll find out. So here's, let's look at this. God's word is good, it's true, and he gave Adam and Eve a, 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 an opportunity to love and worship him. And they should have recognized that and obeyed it. We'd all be better off if they did. Here's a second thing that we see, is that Satan always attacks God's word. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, but I came that they may have life, and they may have it abundantly. Satan's goal and purpose is to destroy people, to impact your thinking, to get you to attack other people, to get you to rebel against God. And he has great logic in doing that. He has great manipulative ability. That's Satan's purpose is to destroy people, to get them to question God's wisdom, goodness, authority, truthfulness. 
Let's look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, and let's just see how did Satan behave in the opening chapters of Genesis. And I just want you to think about this. Satan has not changed his plan. The exact same thing that Satan did in Genesis chapter 3, he is doing today. And, and you'll see it as you think about life and as you think about your own life. Look at this verse, chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Satan wants to mess you up. The first thing he has to do is get you to question what God said. Did God really say that? It's interesting as you read even just the role of men and women and specifically Ephesians chapter 5 where it says, wives, submit to your husbands. And just reading how some people take that. Well, it just, it just randomly said, wives, submit to your husbands. It could have said, husbands, submit to your wives. There's nothing significant about what God specifically said about wives submitting to your husbands. That's just a random example that God chose. Really? <laughs> I mean, read it. What does it say? And what does Satan do? Satan just says, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. See, that's like this subtle manipulation to represent God as not good. Uh, God's like holding out. He's, he's telling you you shouldn't do things. How many people view Christianity as a, as a list of a bunch of rules? I don't want to be a Christian. That's God telling you what to do and how to live. Or when God says not to do something, do we feel like God's holding out on us? Sexual purity, for example, that's only to be expressed in marriage. Oh, how could God want us not to love each other and pursue this in our life? How many things that God says no don't do this. And the world is like, no, that's good for you. You should pursue that. God's holding out on the good fun that you could have. Um, Satan always portrays God's guidance as harmful. Did God really say it? Is God good? And here in verse 2, we see that Eve is going to correct the serpent. Look at this. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the true trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So Eve says, no, God's good. He told us we could eat from anything. He just said, don't eat from that tree or touch it. It's interesting because Eve wasn't there when God gave Adam this instruction. So Adam evidently passed this on to Eve. And so uh, either Adam said, hey, Either Adam miscommunicated it or we don't know what happened, but isn't that kind of what we do with legalism in the church? Where we say this is bad. For example, God says don't get drunk. So, we, okay, that's bad. We shouldn't get drunk. So let's just make a rule that nobody should ever drink alcohol. Kind of the same thing. When we say things that God didn't say, sometimes trying to build boundaries. Is it a bad idea to build boundaries? No, is it, is, it, is it a bad idea to just say, I'm never going to drink because of the damaging things that can happen because of that? No, that's not a bad thing. But when we start confusing personal choices that we make with what God says, that is a problem. We don't add to what God says, and we don't take away from what God says. We say exactly what God says. You know, I wonder if in this whole thing, Eve touched the fruit and didn't die. And thought, oh, interesting, I didn't touch the fruit and I didn't die. And if that caused her to continue down that road, I don't know. So she corrects him, but she still gets it wrong. And then here we see what Satan says. He blatantly rejects what God says. Verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. God says you're going to die. No, you won't. A a an exact contradiction for, and now he's going to question God's good, goodness. God has bad motives. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You know, Satan uh, directly attacks God's truthfulness. He attacks, attacks God's goodness, his wisdom. And he uses the fallacy of equivocation. That's uh, like a, just a term, but he takes something... You will be like God, knowing good and evil. There's an element of truth to that, right? 
Because after Adam and Eve ate the, ate the fruit, they did know good and evil. But were they like God in knowing good and evil? Because God never knew evil by experiencing it. God never knew evil by actually doing evil. And so Adam and Eve, they did know good and evil, but they didn't know it the way God knows it. They became evil. They were separated from God. Satan is manipulative, and Satan lies, and sometimes it is really hard to distinguish his, his lies and truth. That's why God has given us his word. It's why we need to read it. It's why we need to know what it says. And so Satan convinces them to do that. You know, one of the things that's interesting is some people, as they approach Scripture, they feel like, oh, man, it's impossible to know what it means. But when you think about Jesus in his ministry, and I've said this before, and I'll repeat it again, every time the Pharisees got something wrong, Jesus never said, well, the Bible's not really comprehensible. It's not really understandable. I mean, you read it, you think it's saying one thing, but it's really saying something totally different. So I understand why you're confused. Jesus never said that. He said to the Pharisees every time, have you not read? And, and he says to them specifically, Isn't, aren't you wrong because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God? See, our error is always related to our failure to read and understand God's word, which is possible and God intends. So let's consider the third thing here, that disobeying God is always, it always brings destruction, always. Look at verse 6. And we'll start by reading Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Anytime you think disobeying God is a good idea, you are wrong. Um, how often can we read scripture? I think one of the big problems in people's lives is that they haven't read scripture. They don't read the Old Testament. They don't read the New Testament. And so they actually are confused about what God is like, and they're confused about the ramifications of life. When we read the Old Testament, we see, okay, this person disobeyed God. How'd that turn out for them? This person disobeyed God. How'd that turn out for them? This person trusted and obeyed God. How did that turn out for them? What is God like? He's gracious. He's loving. He's forgiving. He's redemptive. You look at the most wicked king in Israel's history. God sends somebody in to deport him and take him away. I mean, he is a terrible person. And while he's off in exile, he repents. He says, God, forgive me. And God takes him out of exile and restores him to his kingship in Israel. That's Manasseh, the most wicked king in the Old Testament. But all these things that we learn about God that people are ignorant of because they don't think they need to read the Old Testament. But there's a way that seems right to a man, and the end is the way of death. So let's look at this. One of the things for you to consider is this. You are made in God's image. Can Satan attack and destroy and harm God? Can he? Nope. But if God wants, if Satan wants to attack God, what's the best way he can do that? It's to attack you. It's to destroy you. You are God's representative on earth. Everything Satan says to you is to destroy you. And so let's read and see how this works out. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, she looked at it and she said, man, that looks good to me. And that it was a delight to the eyes. It was pleasant. And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she gave some to her husband who was with her. So here we find out that Adam is standing right there watching this whole thing happen. And Eve eats, and then she gives it to Adam, and he eats. Verse 7, and then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So immediately something in their heart, in their spirit, changes. You want to know what happened? They died spiritually in that moment. Ephesians chapter 2 says you were dead 
in your trespasses and sins. Adam and Eve died spiritually in that moment. There is this immediate change, this immediate separation from God. And what do they do? They try to solve their problem by sewing fig leaves together. Now think about clothes made of fig leaves. Those things are going to dry up and break and disappear. Like that's a poor way to try to resolve this problem. And then in verse 8 and 9, we'll come back to this later, but verse 8, 9, and 10, look at this. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? You know, this is something for us to consider and for you to think about in your life. God pursues those who wander. Adam and Eve didn't say, we sinned, God, we need your help. They said, we sinned, and they tried to hide, and God pursued them. God pursues us. That has not changed. God always pursues us when we wander away. Verse 10, and he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not? to eat. And then let's look at what happened. The blame game starts, and it hasn't ended, right? I mean, if we're married, if we're around, if we're married, we know this is true, but if not even if we're married, just if you're around anybody, you know this is true. Defensiveness, blaming other people. You ever see kids blame people? Kids blame their parents? Um, everybody blames everybody. You go to work, what is everybody doing? If something goes wrong, everybody's trying to blame someone. Let's look at what happened here. Verse 12, and the man said, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. You notice what Adam does there? He blames God. Have you ever done that? Have you ever lived your life in a way and disregarded what God told you to do and then life melted down and became miserable and you said, God, how could you let this happen to me? You ever know anybody who they marry somebody that God says, don't marry this person? They disregard everything that God says and then they're in this terrible marriage and they say, I'm miserable. This is terrible. God, how could you let this happen? Or people, God says sex is only for marriage. And they're sexually active before marriage. They get pregnant. God, how could you let this happen to me? Did you know that abortion is driven by a desire to make men and women equal? Um, one of the arguments for the whole abortion, killing babies, was you have a man and a woman. They both have sex. The woman gets pregnant and her career is ruined. And the man gets up the next day and continues on with life. We need to make this equal. Let's kill the baby. Like, that's the thinking. That's not the, the subtle thinking. That is the stated argument of abortion. When in reality, uh, God did make men and women different. When men and women have sex, it's the woman who gets pregnant. But what did God say? That's only for marriage, where kids is a good thing. And so here you have Adam saying, God, you caused this problem for me. You gave me this woman, and it's your fault. And it's her fault. You gave me somebody bad. And so then God looks at Eve. You know what I think is interesting? God doesn't say, hey, Adam, you're the one that I designated as the leader. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say you are responsible, not Eve. He doesn't say that. Adam blames Eve. And then God looks at Eve. And what does Eve say? Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman says, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So what does Eve do? She blames the snake. Not her fault, it's the snake's fault. And then God pronounces judgment. God doesn't ask the snake, well, give me your story. You know why? Because animals and people are in a different category. We know that Satan possessed that snake that it was the snake, but that God speaks to that snake himself. He didn't give Satan a chance to answer. Here's the thing that I think is interesting when you look at the curses that come from the fall. The first one is that there's two verses given to the snake. And the first one is God's curse, and the second is a promise of redemption. God immediately promises to redeem mankind. There is one verse 
of curse given to Eve. And there are three verses given to Adam. Let's look at this. Verse 14, the curse on the snake. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all the livestock, above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go. Dust you shall eat all the days of your life. So that's why snakes crawl around on the ground. That's part of the curse of the fall. Verse 15, God's promise to resolve this. And this is amazingly redemptive when you think about this. I will put enmity between you and the woman. That's the spiritual battle that we're in. Between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. We talked about this, the promise of redemption. God says, I am going to redeem mankind through you, Eve. You are going to have a seed. That, that is always, the seed is always referred to from a man. But God looks at Eve and he says, Eve, I'm going to redeem all of this. And what's interesting is no man's involved. It's the Holy Spirit and Eve. We talk about the value, the worth, God's plan for men and women. God has a wonderful plan for everybody. But he says to Eve, you are going to be the channel of the redemption of mankind. Your seed is going to uh, bruise his head. Verse 16, here's this curse on Eve. You know, nobody gets away with anything. God looks at Eve and he says, no, you are responsible. This is what he says. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desires shall be contrary to your husband but he shall rule over you. We're going to think about that last phrase, but um, childbearing will be painful. Pregnancy is going to be challenging. I remember when Michelle was pregnant with Jessica. Man, the thought, like, have you ever thought about what it means to give birth? Like, I'm not going to get into the details, but I just think about this baby looks huge. Like, you see a five-pound baby. It seems massive. Our kids were all big. Um, Jessica was our... Jessica was uh, our smallest kid. She was 8'6". Um, Jackson was 10'6". Julianne was 10'4". And uh, Julianne was a natural birth. That is, that is crazy. And, but I just remember when Michelle was pregnant, going to the hospital, and we're doing all this stuff, I just thought, you know, I should be willing to take pain. And to, to, I just was so glad there was no way I could trade places. <laughs> like, I didn't even have to go through it, but the thought of giving birth was a scary thought. But I remember around the ninth month, Michelle was like, I don't care. I just want this thing out of me. Um, having kids is challenging. It's difficult. It's painful. And uh, that was, wasn't an originally going to be that way. That's a part of the curse of the fall. And your desire will be contrary to your husband, but he will rule over you. Um, there's been a lot of ink spilt on what that means. Some people say childbirth is very difficult, so God had to give women this really powerful sexual desire for their spouse to overcome that. And this, this word is used in, uh, in the Song of Solomon to talk about that kind of desire. So that's actually one of the major views, your desire shall be for your husband. I remember this one older elder told me one time, he said, yeah, anybody who's been married knows that's not true. And, and I know that maybe for some people that's true, and for other people you wouldn't know. I just want you to know that I don't think that is what this is talking about. Um, sexual desire for one another, that is not a curse. That is not a part of the fall. That was God's inten original intention that men and women should desire each other in that way. That is not a bad thing. That is a good thing. I think what this is talking about is the desire to rule, to dominate. Um, what God intended, two people working perfectly together, God said that is going to be messed up. Your desire is going to be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Did you know that this exact phrase in Hebrew is used in Genesis chapter 4? The exact phrase. And we find it in Genesis chapter 4 when God is talking to, to uh, Cain. So uh, God says to Cain, Basically, uh, Cain and Abel make sacrifices in Genesis chapter 4. God accepts Abel's sacrifice. He does not accept Cain's sacrifice. And Cain gets mad. 
And this is how God responds. He just says, Cain, why is your countenance fallen in verse 6? And he says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Exact same phrase. Sin's desire is to control you, to take you, to make you obey it. But you must rule over. You've got to say, no, I will not be mastered by that. I think that's the story of relationships between men and women in marriage and in the church. God has intended for people to work perfectly together. And yet that is not how things function. You know, you think about people who are dancing. You have two people dancing. One person leads and the other one follows. Could you imagine two people dancing? It wouldn't be beautiful. It wouldn't be wonderful if you had two people trying to do their own thing. Somebody has got to be designated as the leader. Now, does that mean, let's just take this dancing illustration, and we'll look into this in the New Testament as we look at these specific instructions, but does that mean that necessarily, like, my kids dance, Jessica does, and and, uh, Jackson does, they're swing dancers, and um, does that mean that that the, the one leading the dance is always the best dancer? This has nothing to do with talent or ability. Does it mean that the man who's leading the dancing, if it's the man in this case that's leading the dancing, that does it just mean that all his ideas are best and he's the most gifted and he's the most talented? He's the only one who speaks into what happens? That's not what happens in dancing. You get two people together and they're dancing. They're trying to come up with a routine. And they talk together. Hey, what's the best way? How should we do this? And, and everybody's contributing. Everybody's using all of their gifts. And yet God says, but here's the leader. And so we'll look at what God says specifically about that. But there's this conflict conflict. There's a lack of harmony. Instead of teamwork, there's disunity. Um, Ephesians, or Ecclesiastes chapter 4 says this, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie down together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. So what happens between men and women is that men, God has intended to lead their families, lead in the church. We'll look at what the New Testament, how that is described. But men don't lead the way they're supposed to. They dominate. They abuse. They come home, sit on the couch, and say, bring me something to eat. And I know that that's a stereotype, but there are cultures where that is the case. And that is not just something men are physically stronger than women. And so women are like enslaved. They are abused. That was never God's intention. And what often happens is people take the ungodly, quote, leadership of men and say, this can't be what God intended. That's not what God wants, this devaluing, this disregard. That is not what God wants. And that's why we don't add things that God has not added. We don't define leadership in an ungodly way. We define leadership the way God defines it. And Craig, when he was preaching about this, said, you spell leadership servant. Um, the, the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. But it is not this way among you. First Peter 5, do not lord it over those allotted to your charge, but be an example. What does leadership mean? Leadership means before you ask somebody you're leading to do something, you do it first. Leadership is to prove to be an example. Leadership is strength that is gentle, not abusive. And so often people take leadership and they describe it with an ungodly, unbiblical definition of leadership. They take following and they describe that in an unbiblical way. And so when you look at this, what does God say about leadership? We're going to come back to this passage later. But it says in Ephesians 5.22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. What is God's intention? You follow the leader that he has designated, 
not because he deserves it, not because he is worthy of it, but because you follow God and this is what God has asked you to do. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's what God intends, and there's more that God intends. It's described in Scripture. But that's where things got messed up in the relationship between men and women. Look at verse 17. And to Adam he said, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten the tree from the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it will bring for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. It, it wasn't just mankind that was changed. Our planet was changed. Why are there earthquakes, hur- hurricanes? Why do things go wrong? Why do animals kill each other? Why do all these things happen? It's because of Adam and Eve. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you will return. Physical death. Adam immediately died spiritually, but then all of mankind began to die physically. It wasn't just spiritual death, it was physical death. And then I just want to emphasize this is amazing and wonderful, but God is a Savior. God is a Savior and He redeems. Romans chapter 5, verse 6 says, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God initiates salvation. It was God who pursued Adam in the garden. It it was God's provision for salvation in Genesis 3.15 where he promises the Messiah 1 Corinthians 15, 22 says, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ will all be made alive. God then kills animals, and he takes their skin, and he clothes Adam and Eve with their skin. And so you see right at the beginning, sin causes death. You see also something about the priority of animals. God loves his creation. The Bible tells us that a righteous man cares for the needs of his animals. The Bible tells us that. And yet God says, you have a need, you need clothes. This animal is going to die, and I'm going to take care of your, you cu- your clothing yourselves with fig leaves. I'm going to clothe you with animal skin. I think about the pain and the devastation of that. I remember being a little kid in my backyard shooting my BB gun. I think I was in third grade. My, kid, my, my, my family, they got us going with guns early. And so I remember shooting in the backyard, and I was shooting at birds, and I could never hit a bird. But one time I hit this bird, and I remember being in third grade, I hit this bird, this little BB hits it in the, in the wing, and it breaks its wing. And so now this bird can't fly, and I'm just looking at this animal in my backyard, and, um, and the, it must have died of shock or something, but this bird ends up dying. And I just remember the intense pain that I felt in my chest. I couldn't believe that I'd taken the life of an animal. It was devastating. And I remember being in third grade and thinking, this is how I feel about killing a bird. What would it feel like to kill a person? How much worse would that be? And immediately God prioritizes human life and well-being over animals. But that doesn't mean there's not this devastation and pain about this animal that needed to be killed. Let's look at the fifth thing that we see here is that Adam's sin caused the fall of humanity. It says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 19, By the sweat of your face shall eat bread until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, and for and for." For you are dust, and to dust you will return. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 says this. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. goes on in verse 15. The free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that One man, Jesus Christ, abound for many. And the tree and the free gift is not like um, the result of that one man's sin. 
For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. When we think about the, the fall of mankind, Adam was the reason that mankind fell. When you read the New Testament, it never says, I mean, Eve was the first one to eat. It never says, Eve, uh, you're the cause of the fall of mankind. Adam was the cause of the fall of mankind. And so when you think about leadership, that's one of those things that we'll consider. And then we're going to allow God to describe how this should be applied, how we should understand that as, as we go through the New Testament. But th- that's one of the things that we see when we look at, well, okay, what was God's creation? How did this work? God has held Adam responsible. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper, and it's just an incredible gift as we consider the fact that Jesus died for you and me to redeem us, to redeem the curse of the fall. And so um, 1 Corinthians tells us this, and if you have your cups, take that, we'll eat the bread first. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus came, that promised seed, to die on our behalf. Let's eat. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's drink. Lord, there is so much broken in life, so much pain, so much sorrow, so much difficulty. And yet, God, we know that you are good. Lord, we know that obeying you is always what's best. Satan is lying to us. He tells us that things aren't fair, that, that there's, there's other wisdom, that our judgment is better than yours. God, I pray that as we consider just the fall of mankind and where all of this came from, Lord, that we would be able to learn from that, that obeying you is always best. And God, as we deal with difficulty and tragedy and pain in our life and sin and falling short, Lord, help us to run to you, not away from you. God, we know that you love us, that you reached out, that you provided a way of salvation. Lord, that when we don't look for you, you are looking for us. And God, I pray that we would pursue you that we would pursue that restoration that you offer through Christ in your name. Amen.